Well, I love the, that sermon bumper video, and I like the touch that Daniel Hicks added, the female boxer. Isn't that great to throw a woman up there? It could have been someone like me or DK Metcalf with their shirt off boxing, but we decided to, to go that route. That's really good. Hey, we're in Ephesians, and we've been walking through this book, uh, not line by line, verse by verse, but just looking at some big themes, sort of a thematic approach under this idea that we're in a battle. Now, Ephesians 6, uh, Nick referenced it earlier in our call to worship, but it is a, a spiritual battle that we're in, a battle that's not against flesh and blood. That is chapter 6 about putting on the spiritual armor, but it really is uh, replete through the book. It's uh, throughout these uh, six letters of this, this great, uh, six chapters of this great letter, we see that we are in a battle. We've been looking at being strong and chosen and made alive and about being gifted. And it's been fun for me to see. I was a few places around town and saw a small groups, saw you guys doing the spiritual gift survey, and we made those available. They're always available online. They were available when you exited last week, and I understand we ran out, which is a good thing, but not a good thing in that some of you emailed the church angrily demanding your way that you did not get. No, not really, but so a few of you did. We got those available today as you exit, but I hope you've been finding uh, dis- or on the journey of discovering your spiritual gift. You have one in Christ. You probably have more than one. So it's been fun to hear uh, from some of you. But today we're going to look at this idea. There's really three points. We're going to get to Ephesians 5, uh, 15 to 17 in just a second. If you want to turn there, that'd be good. It'll be on the screen in a minute. But we've got three big ideas that we're drawing from this passage. I'm going to say them out loud and ask you so you'll stay awake and be energized this morning on a rainy day that you'll repeat them after me. We all ready for that? Life is short. The days are evil. Don't be foolish. Let's say that all that together. Life is short, the days are evil, don't be foolish. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17 reads this way, look carefully, and in the Greek language, the implications there look all around you as if you're walking through a minefield. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Those of you who did open a Bible, you have this in front of you, this letter written to the church at Ephesus. You'll see that before verses 15, 16, 17, there's verse 14, and verse 14 tells us that we are to be awakened. In fact, that's the gift. That's what Christ can do. That's part of the gospel is to being woken up. Uh, The kids say today, be woke. And long before the kids were saying that in 2018 and 19, is that done? Are we over that to get woke? Is that last year. Anyway, the kids were saying, be woke. And Paul said it, that that's what Jesus can do. He can waken us. And that's, we all need a spiritual awakening. I was thinking about stories and fables and fairy tales. It's sort of at the heart of it. This, uh, we live in one reality, but then suddenly there's another reality. We think that the frog is a frog, but the frog is a prince. We think that the lovely stepmother is a lovely stepmother, but she's a witch. You know, you walk into C.S. Lewis's wardrobe closet or you fall down uh, the rabbit hole or you rub the blanket and you, the lamp rather, and then it's not what you uh, expect. There's something there and there's something in us. I think these stories endure because there's something in us. We want to wake up to something different. We want to be transported into a new reality. I have a friend who was on an international flight a couple of years ago, and he wanted to sleep. It was a long, uh, some 14 to 16 hour flight. He wanted sleep. He wanted to mostly sleep. So someone on the flight gave him 
a sedative, an Ambien, and he took one, and he was skeptical, and it, it had no effect on him. He took uh, a second one, still nothing. He took a third one and washed it down with a glass of wine, and he woke up in a strange terminal in a wheelchair with drool on his shirts. <laughs> He had fallen asleep. The flight attendants were unable to wake him up, so they wheeled him out at the gate and just left him there. And put the laughter aside for a moment and just listen to me. That is what sin, that's, that's what happens to us. Uh, it can be sort of a spiritual ambient where it puts us to sleep and we're not awake spiritually. We're not awake to the reality of who Jesus is. Is A philosopher named William James put it this way one time. He said, spiritual awakening exists not as a dull habit, but as an acute fever. You can be woken up to a new spiritual reality. You can be woken up to your workaholism, to failure as a parent. You could be woken up to the greed that's in your heart, to the anxiety and fear, to the negligence in your spiritual life. You can... Wake up to that. And when you're woken up and Christ wakes you up, it's a, it's a new spiritual reality. It, it's new. And it's, it can never be a dull habit. It must be an acute fever. Another friend of mine had a spiritual awakening at a bar in a haze of alcohol. And his colleague, who he was sitting next to, told him that there's zero chance that there's life after death. And my friend in that moment said, I cannot live with this. I cannot bear this affliction. I cannot believe that there is no God, that there is no life after death. And he got up and woke up as he did, and there was something in him that he saw, as C.S. Lewis would talk about, the hound of heaven, that God was pursuing him, and it was stubborn and unyielding, and it was a spiritual awakening for him in a bar in the midst of a haze of alcohol. A spiritual awakening, being woken up to the reality that's around us. What is it? What is it that we need to be woken up to? There's a writer uh, named Bill Nelson of Harvard. He's a professor there. He writes about a poor, uneducated Appalachian man named Adam. Uh, the story is being told at the seminary class, and he's observing these uh, seminary student, students, young men and women, uh, watching this story of Adam, who uh, has been described as a fast-driving, hard-drinking, meth-making screw-up. And he crashes his truck with his friends in there. And he sees this as God's grace. And he surrenders his life to, to, to the gospel. And he's preaching in this county jail, sharing the good news of the gospel to inmates, the same county jail he probably would have ended up in if the judge and Jesus had not given him a second chance. And Bill Nelson of Harvard writes about how uh, Adam's mom was a free will Baptist woman and she was praising her hand, raising her hands and praising Jesus for this spiritual awakening in the life of her son. And I love what he writes. This Harvard University professor says, even the Presbyterian students were reduced to tears. There's something about a spiritual awakening. If it's not a dull habit, if it's an acute fever, and we see that senses are alert and attuned to life, that there's an awakening, there's something powerful there. It's the story of the gospel. Look at what it says here in Luke 9. This is verse 32 of Luke 9. Peter and the others had what? They had fallen asleep. And then they got woke, the Bible says. And they saw Jesus' glory. And so I want us to talk just a few about the, what we looked at at the very beginning. These three realities as we are woken spiritually. The first is that life is short. Job 14.5 says this. 
A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits that he cannot exceed. Now that's true, isn't it? You, do you believe that? That's true. Now we can fight that. I think it's true for everybody who's ever lived. It's true for everybody in the room, everybody who was at the 930 service, everybody that's up in the balcony, everybody here. It's true of everybody alive except Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. He'll, he'll still be living in 100 years from now. They'll be touring and singing. I still can't get no circulation. But anyway, for most of us, for all of us, there's a time and it's appointed. And there's a set number of days that we live. You guys recognize this guy, the hair, the muscles, the tattoo, um, the beard. This is, this is Bryce Harper. He's been one of the best MLB players, Major League Baseball, for a number of years, and a lot of you saw. You don't have to be a sports fan probably to hear this, um, this contract extension that he got this week. And it was a, it's a 13-year, $330 million deal. Isn't that something? So let's just say, I think I'm, this is probably good to say this here today, but Bryce Harper has more money than you. But listen, he doesn't have more time than you. We all have the same number of days and hours. It's appointed. It's an equalizer. But how are we? How are we investing it? A couple things I want to say about time. This is so true. We can overeat, overspend, overextend, overachieve, but we can't overlive. A few things about time. Time is cumulative. A summative is another word. That's maybe it's too fancy, but it just adds up. It's one plus one plus one, and it, it moves that way. Single deposits in the same direction over time equal impact. Because time, it's cumulative. Think about any area of value in your life. Think of exercise. If you miss a workout, let me ask you, is it okay to miss a workout? Is that really going to hurt you if you miss one workout? Now, we, I've got a small group where they would say, yes, it's sinful to miss a workout. we got some, you know, but it's okay. You're, nothing really is going to happen. If you, if you work out regularly and you miss a workout, it's going to do no real damage if you miss a workout. And the same thing is true on the other side. If you never work out and you, you get a workout in, it really has no effect. If you're like, yeah, I exercised two weeks ago on a Thursday for three hours. And that's the first time you've exercised in years. And that will be the last time. You're like, no one's going to walk up to you and go, man, you look like you worked out a few hours. Like, you, you understand that. But what's true of exercise is true of your eating habits. It's true of Sabbath rest. It's true of Scripture memory. It's true of group life, of living in community. This is a reality. But small steps in a single direction over time have a big impact in life because time is cumulative. It adds up. And hear me now. Hear me if you're anywhere within the vicinity of my age. Life is short. It moves fast and you can't undo what you've done. And you can't make up what you didn't do. Think with me, folks, about family mealtime. How often? I mean, it's a vanishing art today. How often do you as a family sit around the table, break bread and share life. How many nights? Four or five nights a week? Once a week? You never really know? I mean, how, I was talking to a friend in Georgia 
this week and he talked about his adult kids they've grown and to me I was listening to his story and thinking life goals like I'm I've got a couple of my three kids right now that they're in the sort of dad's not that cool stage which we know is a terrible myth terrible misunderstanding they're going to grow out of that in a couple of years I'm sure of it right but my goal is I was listening to him talk like that's my goal. I want my kids to be big kids and to be out on their own, but I want them to be able to, I want them to want to be with their father and want to talk to their dad and have a relationship and look back to a rich reservoir of memories and for it not to be awkward. Like we don't have to reconcile a broken relationship. We don't have to think about lost uh, days, weeks, months, or years. There's a, a continual relationship there. And there's something there. And I was listening to this man talk in Georgia. He was talking about family mealtime. He said, Robert, we, no matter what, we would sit around the dinner table four to five nights a week and share as a family. And you know what? If you're not enjoying that, you'll never make that up. Those days are passing. And you see, time is cumulative. And what else is cumulative? I'll tell you, neglect is cumulative. I know we have some college students. We had a bunch in our 930 service. Um, those of you about my age, do you remember college? Do you remember uh, crashing for exams at the last minute? Anybody have the gift of procrastination? And you waited and waited and waited. You neglected. Because you, you neglected to study until the last minute. So you put on the coffee and you pulled off an all-nighter and you did it. You pulled it off. You got a C and you learned that C's get degrees and that's fine. You pulled it off. And listen, there are areas of your life and mine, trust me, I know, there are areas where you can, you can pull an all-nighter. But hear me now, most areas, you can't do that. In most areas, you can't pull an all-nighter because not only is neglect cumulative like time, listen, up, neglect is easy. But hear me, neglect is costly. Oh, it's so easy to neglect something, isn't it? Something of value, that relationship, that, that really important priority that's close to the heart of God that would bring Him glory and it would be good for your soul. Oh, it's just so easy to neglect that. But it's costly. It's very, very costly. There, there are a couple of ways, I think, a couple of uh, ways that we greet time. There's two tendencies with it. One is to be very random with it. And one is to live in rhythm. To... to to live in rhythm. You see, rhythm is it's dependable and predictable. It's punctual. And listen to me, young people, it's hireable. You can count on someone when you know they're going to keep office hours. You can count on someone when they do what they say they're going to do. You can count on someone who lives in rhythms, who understands the seasons of life, who's not striving to live in balance because that's likely a myth. But this person lives in rhythm and you know where they are and you know their word is good and their structure and their systems because there's a rhythm to their lives. But over here is random. And random is the opposite of that. And random mishandles time and misuses money and is running on fumes and is often broke and doesn't have anything to contribute to the mission or to the good of others because it's, they're just so random. Jim Collins wrote a best-selling book years ago that some of you have read called Good to Great. And in this book, he talks about some words that were used to describe the great companies, not the mediocre or average companies, but the great ones, and listens to the words that he says that are common among all these great companies. In the great companies, we were struck by the continual use of words like consistent, focused, 
disciplined, rigorous, dogged, determined, diligent, precise, fastidious, systematic, methodical, workmanlike, demanding, accountable, and responsible. And notice what's missing. Notice what's missing from, from, that, from that list. Random, organic, loose, free, vibey. Now you can be loose and and random and all if you show up and you deliver the goods. But oftentimes we don't when we're living this way. But when, I'm sorry, when we're living randomly, but when we're in rhythm, people can count on us and we live, we live by purpose. And hear me now, we know our values. What are we learning today from Ephesians 5? That life is short, that the days are evil, and that we shouldn't be foolish. The opposite of that, of course, is that we should be wise. We should be wise. Years ago, I established the following five values. And though it happened in my uh, early 20s, I set this in motion and wrote it down and I keep it, I've kept it in front of me through the, through the years. These are my five values. There's nothing super creative about this. You're not going to ooh and ah and wow as you read this list. But these are things that I've tried not to be random about, not to, not to neglect, but to keep in front of me and to make them a part of the rhythm of my life, uh, uh, to have a close relationship with God, to have a great marriage. Anybody can get married, but can you stay married? And can your marriage bring life? And can it grow in its intimacy? Are, are you building special memories and others are, are able to shelter in the tree, the shade of your love and your marriage? I wanted to be able to have that as well as a strong family. I wanted to be physically fit and to have a purposeful career. And these are the values that I've wanted to live by, that I wanted to, for, that I wanted God to bless, to be a part of my life. Take number four. That's kind of an easy one to, to talk about. But each day I've, I have a commitment to exercise. I take a day off, but I want to exercise. And I feel like I want, to, I want this to honor God. The scripture tells us to possess our vessel in sanctification and honor. I think part of it is taking care of it. Now, God's ultimately going to decide when this ticker stops ticking, but I want to do my part in taking care of it. Each and every day, uh, there's a, a point in the day where there's a choice. And I could take a left and go home where there's probably going to be a good warm meal and a wonderful wife and there'll be a welcoming atmosphere and it'll be comfortable and easy. Or I can take a right and lace up my shoes and go to that spot where I run and where I run steps and do other exercises. And I have a choice each and every day, except for my day off, to take a left or take a right. And every day I'm confronted with that. But I want to live not by my feelings. I, want to go, I don't want to go off emotions or emails or last minute interruptions. I want to live according to that value. Now, would it be easier to take that left and go home? A lot easier. But it's better it's better and it's a part of one of my top five life values if I take a right and go get the run in and go do that workout. And it's a better mood for me. It's more energy, probably more longevity and a lot more blessing in my life when I do that. But to live this way, to say, to identify the values, to write them down and keep them in front of you is to live rhythmically, to live more wisely. There's a couple of ways. Uh, let, me, let me put up, a. I think it's the quintessential verse about being foolish. It comes to us, it's actually stated in the Scriptures in many places. Here I've put up Psalm 53, 1a. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
And we read that, and rightfully so, we think of the, the atheist, the one who says just that, there, there is no God, like my friend's friend in the bar that day. There is no God. But you and I can subscribe to the idea, we can believe that there is a God, we can come to a worship service like this and worship Him, but we can live almost every day as if there is no God. Bill Bright calls it a pragmatic atheist. We live as if there is no God, and it's foolish to do so. It's foolish to think that He's not interested in the decisions that I make, that He does not deserve the attention of my worship. And that is the most foolish decision that we can make, is to not bring God in our lives, to invite Him in. And even when it hurts, and even when He's silent, and even when He's distant, I sat with someone this week who's grieving so deeply that all we could do is just sit and weep together. No words. No words needed except, I love you. But to, It's foolish to think that there is no God. And even when He's silent, it's our part. It's our part to desire to listen to Him, and to hear Him speak, and to sit at His feet, and to bring wisdom into our world, into our lives. There's a couple of continuums, a couple of, I would say, tendencies, like we said with time, that are related to God's will. The first tendency is for us to run ahead of Him. And this comes down to, it's an issue of patience, or lack thereof. The second tendency with God's will and His wisdom is to resist Him. Whereas this is an issue of, of patience, resisting Him is really an issue of pride. I don't need you. I got this. I'm going to do it my own. I learned at a leadership conference a couple of years ago, one of the things that would behoove us, that would really help us in following hard after Jesus, is if we would ask the question, in light of my past experience, my present circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, God, what is the wisest thing to do in this decision? God, in light of my past experience, my present situation, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do in this regard? Some of you are following too closely some friends. They have no hopes and dreams of the future. They're just thinking about today. They may be planning a party or something two weeks out, but they don't really have any future hopes and dreams. For us to pursue wisdom is to say, God, I don't want to run ahead of you. I don't want to be impulsive. I don't want to resist you. If I need to wait, God, I will wait. I don't know why I'm waiting. I'm in a wilderness and it's barren and dry and it hurts. But I cry out to you, but I want to wait. I don't want to run ahead of you and do things my way. And younger people, when you get my age, I pray that you have someone in your life, like a parent, a pastor, a teacher, a coach, or somebody, uh, somebody in your small group maybe, that can talk to you about this very idea of being impulsive. And it's foolhardy when we rush ahead and we violate what we know God says to be true. Life is short. The days are evil. Don't be foolish. Pursue wisdom. Ask God. And here's what Scripture says. It says in James 1, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give to all people generously or liberally. Now, doesn't that seem a little trite? It just sounds a little too easy. Lord, give me wisdom. All right, and here it comes. Here comes all this wisdom. Whoops. Here comes this wisdom in abundance. But... Most of Scripture teaches us. Well, let me back up. Even to James, James chapter 1, it says, if you like wisdom, ask of God. He gives to you generously and liberally. But it also, that's in the context of that verse, it says to count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Wisdom, 
real wisdom is earned in the midst of some of your greatest difficulties, some of your deepest pain, is when you gain wisdom. Many times over in the Proverbs and also in the New Testament, wisdom is presented to us as treasure. Hear me now, buried treasure. Pretend that it was 1849 and one of us said, hey, let's jump in the wagon and head out west to California where there's gold in their hills. And we would be excited about it, wouldn't we? We would go out there and we would probably expect a couple things. We would expect the journey to be treacherous because, you know, remember they said jump in the wagon, the covered wagon. So we got to go out there. We got to traverse all the landscape. We got to get all the way out to California. And then when you get out there, you're going to assume another thing. You're going to assume that the gold is not just like readily available on the hills. You're not just, you know, going over a hill and seeing hill after hill of just gold right there as if it's grass. You would probably expect, you would anticipate that when we got out there, we would have to dig. We would have tools and implements to to get in and under, and we would hope that we could, in all of that physical exertion and arduous labor, that we could find a little bit of gold. And it's so interesting. I share that illustration to make it real for you, but that's what the Bible says wisdom is. Like, you got to dig for it. Remember being a kid and you get the cereal, the sugary sweet cereal that you shouldn't have been eating, but you were, you know, you're, you succumb to the commercial of whatever cereal and you go in there and there's a prize inside and your mama's like slapping your hands saying, you know, get fool, get your, get your hand out of that cereal box, but you're going in the cereal for the prize. And your mama's there saying, Hey, eat the cereal. And when you get that, when it gets down to that level, then you got the prize. And some of us want wisdom to be that way. We want to bypass what God wants us to walk through in order to get the wisdom. And it won't be that way. Life is short. The days are evil. Don't be foolish. I want to ask our team to come up as we uh, will sing and pray in a moment. I want to ask you if you would to bow. I wonder if you prayed that prayer. If you said, Lord, in light of my past experience, my present situation, and these future hopes and dreams, what is the wisest thing to do? I want to give you a challenge as we close, as I did the 930. (coughs) There are several times in Scripture where it says very explicitly, this is God's will for you. And in each time it says, this is God's will for you. It's for all of us. I'll give you a couple of examples. Time doesn't permit all of them. But 1 Thessalonians 5 says, for this is God's will for you, that you would be thankful. It is God's will for you to express gratitude, even if you're in a bind. Even if it's difficult, it is God's will for you right now to be thankful. You don't have to wonder about that. It also says that it's God's will for you to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. And that means that you would live in sexual purity. It is God's will for you to do that. You don't even have to wonder. And what I find more times than not, I don't want to sound judgy, I don't want to sound haughty or lofty, but hear me for a moment, hear my heart. Not a week goes by where I don't sit down with someone and they're wanting to know God's will. They're wanting wisdom for a decision. And it's like, who to date, who to marry, where to go to college, what to buy, what to sell, where, you know, where to stay or start or go or whatever. And it's not in Scripture. 
But so often we're just, we're neglecting at great cost what the scripture says is God's will. So I want to challenge you. I don't know who needs to hear it. Maybe all of us or some of us, but like do what you know to be God's will today. And for the areas that aren't spelled out in Scripture, that's what the Bible calls wisdom. Don't resist Him. Don't run ahead of Him. Ask Him, God, give me wisdom in this area. And I want to speak over some of you today. I'm a parent. I have three kids. Love them to death. You know, as an earthly father, I can tell you, I want my kids to grow up and they are and I want them not to come to me for every decision they make. I want them to be able to reason and analyze and discuss and discern and pray. And then you know what? I want them to have the courage to make a decision on their own before God. You may be waiting for some answer some clear sign that God's not going to give you because He wants, you ready for this? He wants you to decide. That could be the heart of your Father. You may be lacking courage. It may simply be a lack of courage. Let me pray over us and then let's stand and sing. Father, Thank you for this letter written long ago to the early followers of Jesus, some 30 years after Jesus. And thank you for three verses we got to enjoy, three chapters we got to enjoy that just told us who we are in you. And now for these last three that's telling us things to do, it's telling us a way to live. It's calling us out to not follow the currents of culture, God, those who've been beat up by a foolish decision, who riddled with a past regret, God, will your grace and love speak to them today? This man who wrote this letter was not some motivational speaker who always lived life the right way. In fact, he tells us, he tells his mentee, Timothy, that I was a, a violent blasphemer and persecutor. And because of my ignorance and unbelief, I did not know Jesus, and now I do, and He has given me grace. And it is this man who speaks with such power who says, life is short and the days are evil, and go to wisdom, make it count. Help us to do that. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, would you stand? This altar is open, and we are here It would be an honor for us to be able to pray over you. 9.30 was such a sweet service for us. And we pray that these few moments before we go will be a sweet time that we could reserve for God to do a work. It's just a few minutes. What can God do? God can do a lot in a few minutes. So this altar is open if you would love to come and kneel before God. And we're here if we can put an arm around you and pray for something in your life. Have the courage to step out today. Let's sing and pray.